Welcome. This is the Perspectives Journal podcast, where we are talking to thoughtful and interesting people from what we call the generously broader reformed world. We're talking about theology and church, history, society, the arts and sciences, and even more. Look for more at perspectivesjournal.org. Welcome. Uh, we welcome today Scott Jose from Calvin Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, as our guest. In a minute, Scott, I'll let you give your official title. I know you've been at Calvin Seminary for quite a while. You've really been involved with perspectives for a long, long time, one of the original 12 bloggers, those kind of things. So why don't you tell us your title, but much more than that, just some background, who you are, where you're from, um, both personally and professionally, as much as you wish to share. Sure. Thank you. Well, it's good to be uh, on this uh, podcast. Right. So I grew up in Western Michigan, in Ada, Michigan. So I've been in this area for uh, most of all my life and went to Calvin College and Calvin Seminary. I graduated from Calvin Seminary in 1990. I served two congregations as pastor, one in Fremont, Michigan, for about three years, and then I was 12 years at Calvin CRC in Grand Rapids. And then after 12 years there, I took the job uh, as the director, the first ever director of the Center for Excellence in Preaching at Calvin Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids. And I've been, I'm in my 13th year of that now. So uh, it was, you know, 12 years at uh, Calvin Church, and I've been 12 years here at Calvin Seminary as the um, director of the Center for Excellence in Preaching. I also teach preaching, a smattering of other things, including the Capstone Integrative Seminar for our seniors, uh, and a couple of electives on science and theology, and literature and preaching. So those are some of the things that I do. I'm married. My wife is the director of quality for the Holland Home uh, System, retirement homes in Grand Rapids. And we have two kids. Our daughter got married last summer and our son graduating from Calvin College this spring. So that's a little bit about me. I have been with Perspectives since about 2000. I was with the magazine for quite a few years as book review editor and then on the board of uh, uh, the board of editors and then as one of the main editors of it. And yeah, I've been in on the ground floor of the, the 12 blog from the beginning as well. Do you still have a Boston Terrier? We do, Chester, yes. He's home sleeping even as we speak. Okay, so you're inherently a, a good person. Hey, tell That's us right. a little bit more about uh, the Center for Preaching Excellence, what it does, what you do with it, and maybe especially anything that's kind of exciting or new or just kind of things that kind of are kind of uh, revving your engine right now about work and just kind of the world of preaching. Sure. The center was founded by uh, Neil Plantinga when he was president of the seminary and was kind of formally started getting off the ground about 2003, 2004. And then I came on board as its director in 2005. We're kind of a sister institution to the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship that John Whitfleet and others head up. That's based at the college and does all things worship. And we're based at the seminary and we do all things preaching, but we're uh, partner organizations, including in sponsoring the, uh, the symposium on worship every January and a few other things that we co-sponsor throughout the year as well. So the Center for Excellence in Preaching here at the seminary, it's really uh, our continuing education arm. Uh, we do some things for students in-house. 
lectures and uh, different opportunities. But primarily, most of our work is aimed at preachers in the church to provide them with the resources they need to do their work of preaching well. So the, our big front door is our website. We've been getting lately anywhere from 1,000 to 1,200 visits to the website per day. And we usually have upwards of 18 to 19,000 different preachers who visit the website uh, each month. Uh, every week we put up sermon ideas, illustration ideas, text ideas, angles, fresh angles on the text for the four revised common lectionary texts that will be assigned for the upcoming Sunday. And then those are all archived. And that's the biggest part of our website. Pastors come to our website weekly to see what we have and then sometimes check our archives. We have a lot of standing resources as well, like recommended commentaries and the like, and some movie illustration databases and quotes from literature databases. So it's all designed to try to give preachers the resources and the tools to stay fresh in the pulpit. So our website's the big front door. Then we do conferences, some big ones that we co-sponsor are the annual Symposium on Worship that draws about 1,500 people here every January. Every other year, we've been co-sponsoring the Festival of Faith and Writing, which we had here at uh, Calvin College and Seminary just last week, second week of April, and that draws 2,000 people uh, every other year, so we co-sponsor that. But then we also have smaller workshops, mostly during the summer, one week or two week long uh, intensive workshops where 15 to 20 pastors will gather for a week and will uh, study some particular aspect of preaching or something that feeds into preaching, and we'll do that in, in week-long seminars. So seminars, uh, bigger conferences, our website, we just do what we can to uh, provide pastors with continuing education and perpetually, we hope, perpetually fresh resources for preaching. Are you out preaching most Sundays, or how does that go? Yeah, it ebbs and flows. I mean, it's dependent on invitations, but I'll, I typically preach two or three Sundays on average per month. So I end up preaching, you know, maybe anywhere from 35 to 40 or so times per year, mostly right here in West Michigan. Now and then um, I'll, you know, if I'm traveling for something else, maybe I'll be in Toronto or in Iowa or California, but the vast majority of those uh, are right you know, within an hour's drive of my home here in Grand Rapids. So obviously perspectives and the 12 come out of the reformed world. We say things like generously reformed, but most of our writers and bloggers and a good share of our readers and listeners come out of especially uh, the Reformed Church in America and, and Christian Reformed Church of North America. And I, I listened to you tell us a little about your background you're sort of a lifelong reformed person. A couple questions just about being reformed. I'm not looking for you to just give us the highlights of what it means to be reformed, but just personally, what especially about the reformed tradition resounds with you or sort of which, you know, I, I suppose you buy it all, but what kind of especially do you hold dear? And then just also to look back and uh, if you've been a lifelong reformed person, how, how have you changed? How are you different and yet still reformed? Sure. Well, for me, you know, there's a sense in which when you grow up, as I did in, in West Michigan and sort of in the CRC and even the RCA bubble a little bit, you don't 
know what it means to be reformed, right? It's like asking a fish what water is like. It doesn't really know. You've just been in it all the time. And only maybe when you get uh, thrown out of that environment or you're a beached fish, uh, are you able to sort of reflect on what makes you distinctive. But I think... uh, and of course, one of the things that happens to you too when you're raised in sort of a fairly monolithic reformed environment, it's also easy to think, well, everybody, all Christians think this way, don't they? And then of course, you get out and about in the world and you realize, well, no, actually not. You definitely speak with a reformed accent and not everybody does. But I think for for me, you know, some of the things that are typical answers to what does it mean to be reformed, they do come to mind, including a very, very large view uh, of of the sovereignty of God, that, that God is sovereign over all things. And for me, that has always meant an emphasis on creation. God is sovereign over the creation in terms of having created it and creating it in an ongoing way as well as that he's uh, the steward of that creation in, in, in terms of providence, that he's the providential superintendent and caretaker of the whole creation. So I think, you know, that God is sovereign over all things, that we worship a majestic and great God who created this wonderful creation and who still maintains this wonderful creation. And now when it went bad, worked very hard through ultimately the incarnation of the Son of God to salvage and redeem and restore that creation. So those are some of the things that that come to mind, that God, uh, so it's, you know, sort of your standard Kuyperian every square inch sort of a thing, but that God is indeed sovereign over all, uh, that he's interested in all, is involved in all. And I think those are some themes that have always resonated. And with that, and neck and neck with that in terms of importance to me, is the idea of a very high view of Scripture. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. It is the infallible Word of God that teaches us what we need to know, to know the truth about God and creation and their relation. That's Neil Plantinga's short definition of theology, that theology is the study of God, creation, and their relationship. Scripture is what teaches us that principally. So, I mean, those are some of the things that, that come to mind immediately when I sort of reflect on what does it mean to be Reformed you also asked about, you know, if I changed and so forth. I think, I don't know. I mean, you could take individual isolated issues that I have perhaps changed on or, or learned more about as I've grown up or been educated or been in ministry more. I think the core things that formed me and shaped me as a person growing up in the Reformed community probably haven't changed that much. Those core things, they've been refined for me. I've been able to reflect on them more. I can speak at much greater depth about them than I used to. But I think a lot of those things, those core convictions about Scripture and and the importance of creation and providence uh, haven't haven't really changed all that much. They've more, as I said, have more been refined as I've read more and learned more and studied Scripture more as a preacher uh, and teacher now. So I think some of those things have sharpened uh, in me. Um, that leads me, though, to I, I know you've always been interested, or at least as long as I've known you, in uh, faith and science. You keep up quite a bit, I believe, in kind of what's happening in the scientific world. Obviously, we could talk about this or you could talk about this for the next two hours. But give us just some kind of basic touchstones that are important to you and in, in how that conversation between 
a Christian preacher and the scientific world goes on? I think that my interest in the faith science or theology science conversation grew directly out of my interest in uh, the physical creation of God. I've always appreciated nature. I was a bird watcher from a very young age already. So I've always enjoyed being out in creation. I've always enjoyed its beauties and wonders and the intricacy with which God made it all. And when I became a preacher, I preached on some of these themes, including at my second church at Calvin Christian Reformed Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I I remember I preached a whole series of sermons on how a focus on and a concern for the physical creation of God is a constitutive part of all parts of Scripture. And so I did a sermon series in which I highlighted examples of that from every part of the Bible, from every genre of the Bible, whether it's uh, the Old Testament narratives and the creation account, the poetry of the Psalms or of Job, the prophecies uh, in the Old Testament, the Gospels, the, the epistles. So I did a whole sermon series on that that ended up becoming a book that got published. I reworked those sermons into a book called Remember Creation that was published in the late 90s. But one of the reasons that I ended up becoming a book was that even though I was preaching at a church that was very staunchly reformed, that had had a very scholarly preacher for most of its uh, history, it was interesting to me that so many people said, we've never heard from the pulpit such a, a reformed take in a sustained way on the physical creation of God and how we're called to not only be stewards of that, but celebrators of it. And we should revel in it and we should be invested in its future because Jesus died uh, to save not just, you know, human souls, but human bodies and, and indeed the entire creation. So I've had that interest for a long time. And then out of that came an engagement more with the science that studies that creation. And that tells us more about the intricacies of that creation. It's history, it's cosmic history, it's origins, but also uh, how it works and what's going on now. And some of that started to get refined in me, too, in the late 90s when I was involved with a program from the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton, New Jersey. And they had a pastor theologian program that I became a part of. And I was in that program around the year when the millennium turned to the year 2000. And so we had spent part of that year thinking about issues related to science and and the Bible and so forth and so on. So, yeah, I became very interested in that. I I wrote a a book on that subject. I've been teaching of the theology and science elective here at Calvin Seminary for uh, quite a few years now. I just think it's a very, very important conversation. Science is a a fact of our lives. And in fact, when the millennium turned around the year 2000, uh, a lot of people reflected back on the last thousand years. And I, I remember reading in the New York Times and in Time Magazine and a few other places that One of the singular achievements of the last thousand years was the whole rise of science and the rise of the scientific method of empirical studies and logical inquiry into uh, how the universe works and why and so forth. Uh, And of course, there's no escaping it. Even the most conservative churches around are are loaded with technology uh, that is based on quantum physics and on science. Our cell phones are based on that. Our computers are based on that. so much of the modern world is the fruit 
of good, hard scientific work. So it, it's a fact of life. It's not going away anytime soon. So I think it's important that pastors and Christians generally know about science. What is it saying? What is it teaching? And then figure out how that is in conversation with scripture and with the theological tradition, which those aren't always easy conversations. But I think those are important conversations to be held honestly, both for the sake of the integrity of Scripture itself, as well as for our being accurate in representing the world to our youth and to the next generation. So, I, yeah, I work hard to, to try to help people know about science and speak honestly and accurately about it, because it's just a key conversation point in the 21st century. You are listening to the Perspectives Journal podcast. If you're enjoying this episode and would like more content like this, visit us at perspectivesjournal.org. Thanks for that. And just, you know, now that we're going down the list of kind of huge and uh, timely topics, faith and politics your, a couple of your last blogs have gotten considerable pushback, I'd say. Um, one, I think, was on gun control and the other regulation, state regulation in the economy and things like that. I, I really don't want to go into those unless you, you wish to. But I wonder, you know, you're often rather political, not partisan, I'd say, but political when you write on the 12. What underpinnings from your faith, from scripture, from theology guide your politics? And how do you see that connection? Well, you know, I mean, it sort of goes back to what I said earlier about the, the sovereignty of God and how our faith as Reformed people, our faith, our view of Scripture and of the sovereignty of God does lead us to have an interest in all of life. And part of life, a substantial part of life in many ways, is the political realm the realm of governance and of civil order, so forth and so on. So inevitably, I think we all, uh, hopefully, we all parse our views of public policy and government work and regulation and the rule of law. Hopefully, as Christians, uh, we really are parsing that in the context of our faith and of what we think Scripture teaches, what the theological tradition of the Church may have to offer us. These days, uh, that's harder to do in large part because we are tempted to parse all of that sort of separate from our faith. Are we just on the left and on the right, and at most every point in between, we maybe take our talking points or our thoughts more from opinion writers or the media or fellow partisans in a certain political point of view. This isn't a universally so, but I think that since we, we do tend to live in our own echo chambers and the media saturates all so much now, that if we aren't regularly seeing and on TV and on the radio, we aren't regularly seeing or hearing. If we aren't regularly seeing people talk about the politics of the right or of the left, whether it's Obama or Trump, if we aren't regularly seeing people doing that from a faith-based, biblical-based perspective, then it, it becomes easier for us not to do that ourselves. So one of the things I hope the 12 can do, as well as other Christian opinion writers that are out there in the world, is yank the conversation back 
to our faith. We maybe will disagree on how to do certain things, but we should at least as believers be able to agree that we should be doing certain things, uh, whether that's care for the poor, care for the environment, protection of the innocent. I think there are a lot of core principles that are based in Scripture and that are part of our faith that we can agree on that these are priorities. And if it takes, you know, political means to get some of these things done the best on a grander scale than any of us as individuals are capable of doing, well, then that's properly a conversation point for people of faith. But the problem is we don't, again, we don't see people doing this uh, in the public square or on the media very often from an overtly Christian point of view. So I think those of us who blog, those of us who write, those of us who are leaders, hopefully should at least try to, to model that kind of engagement and, and maybe provide some talking points and thinking points based on not the rhetoric of the hour or on your favorite TV network, but based on the faith and based on the language of Scripture, uh, to speak Christian about these things and not merely to speak politically and, and the like. Well, let me just push you a little bit on that, because I think at least some of the people that comment on the 12 and would disagree with your takes on specific issues would say, hey, I'm, I'm very much grounded in uh, biblical ideas. I'm shaped by my theology. I'm just not mimicking something and yet they come at things differently. You may not appreciate this, but I'm just going to say that by and large, you lean left-ish. Why? Um, why does the gospel give you the, the persuasions? I mean, you mentioned poor, the environment. Just try and, could you just fine tune that a little bit? Sure. Well, and of course, you know, even on uh, the 12 and even on some of the more critical comments that come my way in the way of some of our other peers who blog there, when the conversations really are biblically and theologically based, I think that's great. I think that's the purpose of it. And we don't have to, we certainly don't have to agree on the means by which something gets done to be able to agree that it's an issue that needs addressing, right? I think most Christians can't miss the fact that the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New has an overriding concern for the vulnerable and for the poor. In the Old Testament, it was the, that you know triplet of the Anawim, the the widow, the orphan, and the the alien, the stranger, the foreigner within your gates. And Jesus continues to pick up on that in the New Testament as well. God has a heart uh, for the poor, and he, he and he expects his church to take care of the poor. And it was one of the first things the early church did do. So I think we, you know, as believers, we can say. Yes, we agree. Spiritually, as fellow believers in Jesus, that's a priority. Now, how do you do that best? Okay, well, that's where the conversations go and where we can fruitfully and I think justifiably disagree with each other. I know people that used to, I used to preach to every week, people I know personally right now who are as committed to helping the poor as I am or as anybody else. It's just that some of them are pretty sure that supply-side trickle-down economics and building a robust economy that's pro-business is going to be the best way to lift up the poor. And others maybe agree with part of that, but also say they, they need extra help. They, they do need welfare. They do need food stamps. They do need government assistance to give them a, a leg up and so forth. And our emphases on what works best are going to ebb and flow and, and so forth. But the core principle 
this is something the church is supposed to be interested in. This is something I, as an individual believer, am supposed to be interested in. I think we can all agree on that on very sound biblical theological basis. And I think the same is true of a whole bunch of issues. What makes, though, individual believers lean left or lean right, which often tends to dictate what they are going to do uh, in terms of advocating for public policy? I think that's a very complicated issue. It, it has a lot to do, perhaps, with where we grew up. It has perhaps a lot to do with the belief of our parents. It maybe has a lot to do with all kinds of things. I mean, I don't think there's any, any one thing or any one reason. And you ask, why do I lean left politically? Uh, when indeed uh, a great deal of my family, including some of my close family, leans very far the other way. And so, you know, what influences you? And, and I can't identify any one thing. I can't identify any one influence on my life that, that makes me tend to lean left uh, politically. I just think it's a whole, it's a whole series of, of things and sort of, sort of the, the way I, and it is also the way I read and interpret scripture, the way I read and interpret the minor prophets, the way I see those, uh, some of those concerns being transferred into the rhetoric of, in the ministry of Jesus and then of the apostles after them. For me, it all kind of coheres and, and makes a certain sense, which makes me, you know, lean a certain direction. But it, I think it's very, very hard to know. I think one thing, though, that I have experienced, and I'm not looking for anybody's sympathy, and I'm not even necessarily saying I'm I'm 100% right on this, but one of the things I think we do see, and one of the things I think that does come out sometimes in the comments on the 12, is something that I've experienced for quite a while. And that is that if you lean left, or even if you're center left, in some of your views, social, political views, and so forth, and you're a Christian, there are often in many circles, not all, but in many circles, there seems to be this idea that you have to explain yourself. How can you be a Christian and vote for this person? How can you be a Christian and? And I think some of us who, who are center or center left or left leaning or definitively left have experienced that a lot from fellow believers. That the, and I could be wrong about this. But in, in, in our circles, I think in, in, in a lot of the Reformed world and certainly in a lot of the evangelical world, I have a feeling that doesn't happen in reverse nearly as often. I don't think people who lean right and who have been part of sort of the moral majority type people since the 80s and who tend to vote, you know, on the right side of the spectrum, I don't think they get challenged too often by other people saying, gee, you're a Christian and you, you vote Republican. How can that be? So the conversations uh, don't always are, aren't 50-50 in terms of defending ourselves. And I think there's a host of historical and cultural reasons for that. And I think we wouldn't have to look very hard uh, or very far rather into the history of the Christian Reformed Church or the Reformed Church in America to understand why some of that is true, as well as some of the other wider evangelical constituencies in the United States, at least. But I think it is, I think it is true that if you lean right, there seems to be an assumption that, well, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, they're Bible-believing Christians, of course. But if you lean left, then it's sort of like, well, how does that square with the Bible? Explain yourself. And I found that very, very early in my ministry back in the early 90s. And I think it is still there today that not that people who lean right are given a pass or they're never challenged. I think they, they probably are. And there'll probably be, you know, it could be a thousand responses from people to this, what I just said on this podcast, challenging that. 
But that's sort of my experience. It seems to me that there are a number of legitimate ways equally orthodox believer could lean, but that of late, unless you lean right, then your orthodoxy is suspect. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for that. How about let's kind of stay in the same ballpark and kind of then talk about blogging versus preaching. What's different, both, I guess, suppose in audience, but also sort of in your approach, how much Scott can shine through in one versus the other. Just, I guess even I'm kind of going at, it's probably fair to say, or let's just talk about this, if it is fair to say, that your blogs are are not what you bring to the pulpit with you. Oh, no. No. I, and of course, I've preached a whole lot more than I've ever blogged, right? I've written, you know, who knows how many, 1,500 sermons in my life. I don't know how many, and how many blogs have I written? I don't know, not very many. So I've got far more experience with preaching. Than, than I do with blogging, but they are very, very different. And indeed, in preaching, I would be, I think in one of the differences is that in blogging, I'm much more willing to venture my own opinion and my own idea than I would be in preaching when I think what I'm really, really supposed to be doing to the best of my ability is bring out the word of God, bring out the truth of scripture and of the gospel as it comes through this particular text that I'm preaching on today. That doesn't mean that your opinions or ideas for how to apply that don't come out in preaching, but it comes out in a much more minor key way. The main thing is, what does this passage say? How does it contribute to the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ, our Lord? And where does it give us hope and joy for our lives as believers? That's what I want to happen in preaching. Preaching is proclamation, first and foremost. I'm there to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ, who is the, the risen Lord of life. That's what preaching is supposed to do. Proclaim good news in ways that lift burdens, uh, that, that give people hope uh, and joy, and that give them, you know, the assurance of, of the resurrection and of, and of the truth of the gospel. Blogging is, is much more different. It is much more of an op-ed uh, sort of a thing where you, you venture forth maybe a single opinion on a single topic and just sort of try to think your way around that. Uh, in the blog and invite others to do the same thing. And as, as some think their way around that topic, they come to very different conclusions than I did. And that's just fine. Others find their own thinking confirmed or echoed, or they, they see themselves and their way of thinking. But it's much more narrowly focused than preaching. And it's much more, it's, it's much more about what I think, whereas what I hope ultimately comes through in preaching is what God thinks and what the gospel says or what the what the spirit is saying to the church through this text. So I'm much more out front with my ideas on a given week and on a given topic in a blog than I ever would want to be true of a sermon. Now, that's not to say that in preaching, eventually people don't sniff out your politics. They do. They figure out over time, based sometimes on the things you emphasize week in and week out, they sniff out and figure out a lot of things about you. But in a blog and more of an uh, opinion, you know, I'm willing to risk my own opinion, which could be terribly wrong. And if so, then that's on me. But I, I don't worry that if I'm wrong, uh, then I've also damaged God's word, as I would worry in a, in a sermon. My job as a preacher is to be a steward of the good news of the gospel and to proclaim it clearly and in a clarion way that, that provide hope and joy. 
we apply things in our sermons, of course. We figure out what does this mean for tomorrow and for a life of discipleship. And some of that strays into some of this territory of what do you stand up for? What do you advocate for? What's your line in the sand on this or that issue? Of course, that all comes up in preaching. But as a result of dealing with the text, first of all, not as the beginning and end of the matter, which it can be more in a blog. Okay. Hey, shifting gears quite dramatically, somewhere in there you just talked about uh, proclaiming things that bring uh, joy and hope. Could you just tell us uh, where you find hope? I, I think people are desperately looking for hope. And by that, when I say, where do you find hope? I'm looking for very tangible and practical things in your daily life, as well as maybe much more ethereal, invisible things. But what? where do you find hope? How do you nourish hope? Well, on a generic way, if I were just to kind of answer this the way almost anybody might answer it, you know, uh, you, you find some measure of hope in the same arena, which sometimes, in which you sometimes witness things that seem to want to beat the hope out of you. And that is just sort of our fellow human beings. You know, I mean, I'm a Calvinist, so I believe in total depravity and sin and all the rest right on down the line. I don't believe in the inherent goodness of people at all. Quite the opposite as a, as a, as a reformed uh, believer. But I also know that, you know, you can witness things from your fellow human beings, sometimes witness things that are inspiring from our young people that give you hope for the next generation, give you hope that, you know, at the end of the day, though, we sometimes fight and say nasty things about each other. People, people, there are an awful lot of goodwill among people. There are an awful lot of people who really do want to be kind and not unkind, and they outnumber those who are just sort of mean or rankly racist and, and evil and so forth. But that's just sort of on a general human level. Ultimately, of course, hope can only be found in the gospel. Hope is only found in Jesus Christ. It's not in getting the right person elected to the White House. It's not in getting the right number of judges on the bench. It's not on legis passing this or that piece of legislation or any of some of the other things we actually talk about sometimes on the 12. Hope is finally rooted in Jesus Christ. We've been involved at Calvin College and Seminary for the last number of years now, increasingly involved in prison ministry, both uh, at Angola State Penitentiary in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, but also increasingly in prisons here in Michigan, where we've started a college and seminary program, the college and the seminary behind bars. And I'm uh, just finding all these incredible believers, these wonderful Christian men who are incarcerated, many of them for the rest of their lives. And somebody a while back was at one of those prisons. I can't remember which one. I think it was at Angola in Louisiana. And somebody observed to several of the inmates, and a couple of them there were inmate pastors who actually graduated from the seminary that is inside the Angola State Penitentiary. So they're inmate pastors. Anyway, somebody said, you know, I came to this prison not knowing what to expect. And yet I find this to be such a hopeful place. How can there be hope inside a prison when most of you are lifers? You're never going to get out. And one of the inmates replied, well, you ask, how can there be hope? See, we believe hope is a person. Uh, his name is Jesus, and we love him very much, and he's here. Hope is a person. Hope is Jesus Christ. And so ultimately, he is, as I said earlier, to loop back to what I talked about, the distinctives of Reformed theology, he is the sovereign Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's got this thing. 
He's got this thing in a way we never will have it and shouldn't even want to try. He's got this thing in a way no earthly ruler, no matter how good, could ever even come remotely close to uh, to competing with. And so I think, you know, those are, that is the ultimately where we find hope. And that's ultimately what sermons should proclaim, that life, not death, has the final word. We're not optimists in the traditional sense of that uh, word, but we are deeply hope-filled people. We've been given a new birth into a living hope, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1. A living hope. It is still hope, right? We can't see it, as Paul writes. If you could see it, you wouldn't have to hope for it. You'd have it. But we do see it by faith. That's what makes us go on even in dark times, even in times where we find much to be distressed about in our individual lives or corporately or as a nation. Ultimately, for believers, that's where we draw our strength from. Great story there about prison, which then, you know, leads me to my last question that I've been asking everybody. I say the word Jesus. What does that do to you? How do you hear that? And ultimately, who is Jesus for you? Well, I mean, again, he he is a, a living presence in my life. By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I have a living connection to this uh, person of the Godhead, this eternally existing Son of God, who more recently also became an incarnate human being named Jesus, and that we have this living connection to him, and that he He is watching us. Yes, uh, he's accompanying us. He is with us always, as he promised in the Great Commission and elsewhere. He's, he's here in our everyday settings, and our living connection to him is, is what you know, helps us to go on in the face of death, in the face of hardship, of uncertainty, of sadness, of some of the inevitable sadnesses we all have to endure in our lives. If we live long enough, we will inevitably endure a lot of hard stuff. But you have that living connection to the, to the very Son of God who is at the right hand of the Father, and that living connection then to Jesus is, is, you know, if, if nothing else, that's what keeps you putting one foot in front of the other and believing that uh, at the end of the day, no matter how much goes wrong in my life or in the church's life even or the life of the wider creation and world, none of that badness endures. What endures is the word of the Lord and what endures most especially is the word of the Lord, the word made flesh. That is, uh, and that is Jesus, and that he is this real presence in our lives, and, and we are the living temples of his spirit now, and that, that really changes and transforms everything. Amen. Amen and amen. Hey, Scott Jose, I thank you for your time and your words and your thoughts, and we'll continue to look forward to seeing you on the 12 and other good places. Thanks, Steve. Okay. The peace of the Lord be with you, Scott. And also with you. Okay. Amen. Thank you for listening to uh, this podcast and check back. We'll have more. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us today on the Perspectives Journal podcast. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and share this episode. Until next time, have a good week.